for Children's Church. They'll be back for our final hymn. They can also stay and listen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. We're looking at uh, Acts chapter 12 today, continuing after last week we uh, took a break for Easter, but continuing now with our series. This will be page 920. If you're using one of the Bibles here at the church, it will also be projected. But if you want to follow along, page 920 in the Bibles here, Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter today. Acts chapter 12. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word which is given to us to grow us. Father, may we listen. May we lay your words up in our hearts. May we practice them in our lives. Through the power of Christ and by his name, we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, "'Get up, quickly!' And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is God's word. Now, before we look at uh, this text, this chapter, I just want to remind you where we are in the book of Acts, right? So the book of Acts fulfills Jesus' words at the beginning of the book uh, that his disciples will be his witnesses, right? First in Jerusalem, and we saw that, the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, and then to Judea and Samaria, we saw that, chapters 8 to 10, uh, and then to the ends of the earth, which I think that process sort of begins with the church in Antioch, what we saw two weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, Antioch, right, it's that first mixed Jew-Gentile church. And we're going to shift after chapter 12, really, to focus more on Antioch and these missionary journeys that are sent out from Antioch to the ends of the earth. But before we do that, we get one more look at the church in Jerusalem. This is the first church to face significant danger and hardship. And they show us here in this text how Christians defeat their enemies. Uh, their experience actually reminds me of a story I remember reading as a young man. Uh, I was reminded of it by a, a pastor I was listening to as I was preparing for this sermon. And the story is about a, a missionary named John G. Payton. Uh, he was a Scottish missionary in the New Hebrides. Uh, you might not know those islands. There are a bunch of little islands in the South Pacific near uh, Papua New Guinea. And John G. Payton was sent there in the 19th century, and he has this incredible autobiography, uh, very worth reading. But he tells one story about how one night uh, the, the natives were outside his home parading around and um, threatening to burn him and his wife alive. And if you know the story of, of, of this, of, or this was kind of very early on in his time on this island. It's a very dangerous island. The previous missionaries had already been killed uh, prior to John and his wife arriving. Uh, the population practiced cannibalism. And so John and his wife, they thought for sure they would die that night. Uh, they spent the night on their knees praying. Um, but by morning, the natives were gone. And several years later, an important chieftain on the island became a Christian and a friend of John. And so John asked him if he had been there 
that night, and the man said that he remembered that night very well. And John asked, well, why didn't you guys burn down the home like you were saying you were going to? And the man replied, we were frightened of all the other men that were in your house. This story is a reflection of what we see here in the book of Acts. John and his wife, they trust the Lord, they rely on prayer, and the Lord sends his angels to defend his people. And so the title of my sermon today is How Christians Win. And the answer is by trusting in and praying to our victorious king. By trusting in and praying to our victorious king. It sounds like a weak answer, perhaps, but we will see in this story how the weak weapons of the Christian are more powerful than the might of the world. And so we begin by looking at the might of the world. And my first point, strong enemies, strong enemies. Chapter 12 begins with this guy named Herod the king. And look, whenever you hear the name Herod, it's not good. Uh, Herods are always enemies of God's people. There are three Herods floating around in the New Testament, and they're all related. So just real quick, we have first Herod the Great. That was the first Herod. He was the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus, right? And he massacred all the male babies of Bethlehem in his attempt to get rid of Jesus. Uh, remember the wise men come to him, they're asking for directions to the king, and he's very jealous. In fact, that Herod, the Herod the Great, he was so paranoid and jealous, he actually killed one of his sons, uh, at least one of his sons, Aristobulus, who was Herod the king's father. Uh, who we have in this text, Herod the king. So his grandfather was Herod the Great. The guy here um, is Herod the king. Now, there was also Herod Antipas. This is another son of Herod the Great, one of his other sons who survived. And Herod Antipas, you'll remember, he's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, he's the one who uh, mocked Jesus, derided him, and conspired with Pilate to betray him and give him up to the Jews to be killed. And so that's, that's Herod Antipas. And then we get to Herod the king, the, the Herod in this text, and he also uh, persecutes Christ. He persecutes Christ. Remember what Jesus told Saul on the road to Damascus, right? Saul is hurting Christ's followers, and Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? Not my followers, me, because those who persecute Jesus' people persecute Jesus himself. So all these Herods are the same. One after another, they are against Christ. And what does it look like to be against Christ? To take his glory, to deny his rule. Exactly what we see here at the end of the text. Herod, if you jump to the end, right, he gives this fancy speech. He's got all these clothes on. The Jewish historian Josephus actually describes this exact scene. He describes how uh, Herod was wearing these really shiny robes, and the sun was reflecting off them, right? And, and all the people shout and applaud, the voice of a God, and he did not give God the glory. He wants God's glory. He, he wants to be like God. And isn't this the original sin? 
This is the sin at the center of all our hearts. This is the sin that first tempted Adam and Eve to be like God. We want to be in control. We want to know what will come next. We want people to like us. We want to be right in their eyes, glorious in their eyes. We want the crown on our heads. Maybe you have something in common with Herod here who wanted to please the crowds and who tried to steal glory from the Lord. We can repent of this, can't we? And we ought to. But Herod did not. He is a strong enemy of God's people. And he is anti-Christ, which is a dangerous thing to be. But when he finds that killing James makes the Jews happy, he arrests Peter as well, and it seems like nothing can stop him. Uh, Notice, you know, we don't even know what verse 1 means that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Uh, Perhaps there were many who he killed at this time. Maybe this just refers to Peter and James. We don't know. But uh, notice his power in verse 2. In one swift sentence, James is dead and Peter is in prison. These are two of the three pillars of the early church. Knocked down in one below. Uh, Jesus had an inner circle of three disciples. uh, Peter, Uh, James and John. They were brothers, James and John. And John, we know, right, he wrote five books of the New Testament. But James? Just imagine how crushed the church would feel. James, Jesus had called him a son of thunder. I don't know exactly what that means, but I guess he was loud and maybe full of life and bold and strong, but now he's dead. Peter, Jesus also called him the rock, right? Arrested and awaiting the same fate. And also notice, when does this happen? It happens, verse 3, during the days of unleavened bread, which was a feast that was right before the Passover. And so Jerusalem would have been full of all of the most zealous Jews in the known world. Those who were true Jews would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover, this feast. And so the city is brimming full of these zealots, the same ones who crucified Jesus. The ones Herod wants to get on his side. The Christians, they're more a minority than ever. They must have been full of cold, dark fear. Who's next? And notice how securely Peter is being guarded. Herod, he can't kill him immediately because under Jewish law, you couldn't have a trial during a religious feast. And of course, Herod wants these Jews to like him, so he's following their rules. Instead, he just locks him up real good until after the Passover. Verse 4, he's got four squads of soldiers. That's uh, four soldiers in each squad. And uh, they were probably, during the night at least, on three-hour shifts. Each squad would watch him for three hours. This was to avoid any possibility that a soldier might fall asleep. You only have to watch this guy for three hours at a time. And verse 6 tells us, right, Peter had uh, one soldier chained on one side, one on the other side. That's, uh, that's also abnormal. Typically, you just, you know, throw the, throw the guy behind a locked door, or else maybe you'd have one a soldier chained to him. Apparently, Herod knows these disciples have escaped jail before, and he's taking no chances. The might of the world 
is against these Christians. Maybe you feel this way sometimes. You look at the enemies out there, world powers persecuting Christians, trying to teach our children their lies, and our own flesh biting us from within. And the devil and his horde of deceivers against us. You feel pretty small with all that against you. And in fact, Christianity does look very weak. And so we turn to my second point, weak Christians, weak Christians. Just look at these Christians here in the middle of the chapter. They look really weak. Peter is sleeping. And what are the believers doing? Are they getting ready for a night raid, a daring escape attack on the fortress? No. Uh, gathering their wealth to bribe the guards? No, they don't have any of that. Are they, are they lobbying some of their senatorial connections in Rome to force Herod to let Peter go? No. They have none of these things. They appear to have no power at all. They're just on their knees in a locked room praying to someone they can't see. The world looks at these people and laughs. What a mess. How are these people going to spread their message across the world? If this is how they do things, I mean, you got to have power to make things happen. Don't you know this, guys? you got to get a consultant in here make, to, to help you out. You need branding. You need organization, money, political connections. You guys are hopeless. What do they have? Well, trust, right? Look at Peter. I know he's asleep, but guys, he's asleep the night before his execution. And don't forget the Peter of the night before Jesus' execution. He was so desperate to save his own skin that he denied even knowing Jesus. Jesus even warned him ahead of time, and he still bombed it. Right? Well, Peter gives hope to those of us who feel like we're not very good at trusting God yet. He got better. You don't sleep like that the night before your execution unless you know the Lord is holding you in his strong hands and you are okay with whatever direction he takes you. You can't sleep like that the night before your death unless you believe in the resurrection and you know you have a victorious king. And Peter has no good reason to believe God will necessarily bring him out of this place. He didn't save James. That was the Lord's purposes for James. If you don't trust the Lord, that is terrifying. Without trust in God's good purposes, you'd rather have a vending machine than a sovereign Lord. But trust gives Peter power over his circumstances. He knows these circumstances are not random. They are terrifying, but they are not meaningless. They feel like they're going to be bad for God's kingdom, but actually they will be good for his kingdom. This feels like it couldn't possibly be the right direction for his life, but actually it is. It feels like he's not winning, but he will win. 
James has already won. Well done, good and faithful servant. And knowing that, Peter sleeps soundly between his guards. So soundly the angel has to hit him to wake him up. What else does the church have? They have prayer, right? Prayer. And honestly, prayer is the central weapon they have in this text because trust is part of the act of prayer. What is prayer? Here's a definition. Prayer is a means through which we commune with the living God and advance his kingdom. A means through which we commune with the living God and advance his kingdom. Right? You notice there's two parts to that uh, definition to prayer. I, I think those of you in last semester's Sunday school class worked with a similar definition. There's, there's communion with God, growth in our relationship and, and intimacy with him as we speak to him, as we share our doubts, our, our fears, our concerns, our amazement, our love. And then there's also this way in which we advance his kingdom through prayer. And this is one of the mysteries of God's sovereignty that he has ordained that our prayers do things. That one writer says, our freely offered, honestly expressed petitions, God ordained as his appointed means to accomplish his purposes. We advance God's kingdom through prayer. That's not a violation of his sovereignty. It's a mind-blowing expansion of his sovereignty. That in the vastness of his eternal design for this world, for all things, he includes our prayers as a conduit to his actions. Friends, listen to God's word here. When there are setbacks in our families, in our church, what do we need to do? We need to embrace the response we see here. Get together and pray. It looks weak, but it's not. How slow we are to pray and to regard it as a powerful spiritual weapon. Prayer is a powerful means of grace. It gives life to our spirituality along with the word of God and the sacraments. I remember a sermon my dad preached on prayer when I was younger in which he said something like this, the weakest person in the kingdom of God who prays is a powerful force. And I heard this at a point in my life when I felt particularly weak, I felt useless, I felt broken. And I thought to myself, I'm weak. But I can do that. I can pray. I may never be smart or rich or powerful. I may never get my sermons totally perfect. Maybe people will get bored of my preaching after a while. My theology may never be totally worked out. I might not always see my sin clearly and be bursting with the fruit of the Spirit and just be witnessing to all my neighbors at once. But I can pray. I can do that. It was about, at that point in my life, I started a list of people to pray for. I started with a list for each day, but then that didn't work so well because I missed days, you know? I don't know if you guys have that problem as well. So I just pray for whatever list is on top now. 
Christian, you may be the weakest of all, but you can pray. A little here, a little there, and in God's great wisdom, he will use your prayers to bring you closer to him and to advance his kingdom. And why does prayer do something? Because we have a victorious king. So my third point, a victorious king. And you know, one of the ways our victorious king reveals his power in this world is through the weakness of his people, what we just saw. I mean, maybe, we need to go back to this, maybe you noticed just how comically weak the Christians are in this text. It is on purpose. They're so weak, it's actually humorous. A few of you chuckled while I read the text. We already saw how Peter had to be struck awake, right? But then notice how he can't even do anything for himself. He's like a little child that just got up from a nap, right? Get up, Peter. Dress yourself, right? Now your shoes. You're forgetting your shoes. Now put on the cloak, Okay, now follow me, right? Why all these details? Uh, he, he, he doesn't even know all of this is, is real. The, the gate swings open automatically. His chains just drop off, right? It's abundantly obvious. There's a greater power at work. Peter, he doesn't contribute anything to his escape. He can't even put on his own shoes without being told. That's the extent of his weakness. And it doesn't stop there, right? Uh, he gets to the house. Rhoda hears that he's, he's, he, she hears his voice, and she fails to open the door. Uh, she goes inside to tell the believers. They don't even believe that the exact thing they are praying for has actually happened. They're willing to believe anything except that their prayers have been answered. First, Rhoda must be crazy. And when she insists, well, maybe, and they go off into some sort of weird theory about Peter's guardian angel being at the door. I mean, this is like a comic routine. These people are laughable. Why would God save these people? Why would he love them? They're not very smart. They're, they're praying, and they don't even appear to believe in the power of prayer. Does this sound familiar? The grace of God is why he saves these people and us. God is so, so gracious and his power is displayed in the weakness and the foolishness and the slowness of his people. Why would the great God who, who has an army of angels he can send to and fro to do his bidding. Remember Jacob, he has the dream. He sees, the Lord reveals to him the ladder between earth and heaven. These angels coming back and forth, doing exactly what the Lord says. He's sending them across the earth in his, in his bidding. He's the victorious king. Why would he save a wretched and weak fool like you? Because he loves you. He loves you. And so he frees you from the dungeon. Your chains fall off and you go free. But notice what happens here. This is a victorious king we're talking about. And so he sends his angel to strike Peter to wake him up. 
and, and free him, but he also sends his angel to strike his enemy Herod. Same exact Greek word here. The angel strikes Peter in verse 7 to save him and then strikes Herod in verse 23 to judge him. Life for one, death for another. The one who humbles himself before God and acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord, he will be lifted up. But the one who exalts himself, he, the Lord, will humble. And Herod is humbled at the very peak of his glory as the crowd roars in adoration. He is struck down and eaten by worms. And so all the enemies of Christ who steal his glory will be struck down. We do not rejoice over that. But it is right. It is true. It is just. Listen, the enemies of the world, the enemies who fight against Christ in this world, they may look strong. They may look mighty. But here's what we learn from Herod. If you attack Christ, you lose. He is a loving king. He is a gracious king. He is a forgiving king. He is a merciful king. But he is also a victorious king. And so sure enough, as soon as Herod falls, what do we read? Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. This chapter began with Christ's church in a desperate state, but do not be deceived. It is exactly in our weakness, at the point when we are dying to ourselves, that the Lord's strength is shown. And as we turn in our weakness to trust, and to prayer, we can be confident that the Lord will work mightily. He is the victorious king. Let's pray to him now. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray to you. You are the victorious king. You are the victor over the grave, O Lord. And you are the victor over your enemies. You show us in this text how even... The great Herod, who seems at the beginning to be unbeatable, who is crushing these Christians underneath his feet, Lord. Even he, Lord, works according to your sovereign will. Oh Lord, we do turn in trust to you and ask that you would be present in our lives to show us that victorious king, to lead us in worship of him even today as we think of his grace, his love in choosing us who are not very smart, who are not very powerful, who are the weak of the world, and who show our weakness continually. In choosing us, and Lord, in promising to make us beautiful, giving us his righteousness, and Lord, loving us throughout our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand, we'll sing our final hymn. This is number 455, and can it be? Number 455.